0: Reported live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up. Turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christie.
1: We've made it all the way to episode number nine. Welcome to the PR and Law Podcast. I am your host, Cam McMurchy along with you and Christie. Hello, Cameron. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the digital bits PR and communications newsletter. And you can find that over at digitalbitspr.com. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and you can find his firm online at duntroonllp.law. So just off the top, we just want to remind you again, if you, if you could, uh, Share this podcast with a friend. It's the only marketing that we've got. It matters a lot to us. Um, and you can also find us on social media as well, on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And our account name is PR Law Podcast. So you can go to twitter.com slash PR Law Podcast, Facebook.com slash PR Law Podcast, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And you can support us on Patreon. That would also mean a lot to us. Uh, You can find our Patreon page by going to prlawpodcast.com and clicking support the show. Lastly, uh, you can also listen to the show on YouTube, which is a very popular way these days to uh, listen to podcasts. So that's open for you as well. Ewan, what is happening back in the center of the universe? (laughs)
2: Well you should probably give some context to that for for those who aren't from Canada as to why we call ourselves the the center of the universe here in Toronto cam
1: Yeah that's a good point uh, Toronto sort of has a like a, a a New York kind of feel for locals anyway who uh, or no I guess a better way to explain it is people outside of Toronto think Toronto is rather arrogant and uh, And and can't see the rest of the country, let alone uh, worry about what's happening there. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, I guess it's probably fair to say. Uh, I don't again, I don't think Torontonians feel that way. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's often sort of pegged as the sort of um, self important center of the country because a lot of the media is based here the financial center is based here um but again i I don't know that torontonians necessarily look look at themselves in that regard yeah i don't think so yeah things things are things are okay things are okay we're you know our, our state of emergency has been extended basically till the end of june which means we're all still in lockdown um you know the rest of the country seems to be doing better than 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 we've been doing. Um, I guess with a notable exception of of Quebec, I see uh, you know bc is is still crushing it and they're they're opening. The New York Times is doing profiles on on Bonnie Henry and the and the job that she's done weathering the covid storm but um, yeah not us cam we're, we're we're stuck inside at least for for a few more weeks
1: yeah uh, 300 new cases a day you were mentioning uh, I think that's quite high um, overall I, again um, it's not an apples to-apples comparison but like Hong Kong is over just over a thousand cases in total um, but uh, if we're gonna talk covid 19 uh, let's do it this way. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Sorry. COVID-19, a little hip hop music. Um, Okay. So you went worldwide in case you didn't know 6.66 million cases of COVID-19, 393,000 deaths, almost 400,000. I could have never imagined this when the first cases were being reported out of Wuhan. Uh, It's just mind blowing in the U S almost 2 million cases, uh, in total and 111,000 people, have died in the United States uh, of COVID-19, at least the ones that we know of who died of COVID-19. And here, Ewan, and I wanted to bring this up again in contrast to sort of what's happening in some other places, and I'm not crediting the government here with this or anything, but I mean, I've been out this weekend, it's been a bit rainy, but even last week, I mean, we are a hundred percent back to normal. I mean, the streets are packed, and of course, it's very humid here. You know, we've been hitting thirty degrees, and you know what it's like when you've got you know ninety-eight percent humidity, um, and no no cases being uh, being transmitted locally. We still have the odd one flying in, but um, there, there's more and more places I've noticed that require a mask to be worn before you before you're able to enter. Uh, that shop and i can't think of any off the top of my head in particular but i'm seeing that a lot on restaurants or in uh you know individual shops in shopping malls uh things like that um and i think uh yeah the mask not to beat a dead horse we've done this so often but the mask is a really simple cheap easy thing to do to um to hopefully severely curtail the spread of the virus
2: uh yeah well i mean i think we got to talk about the who who sort of finally came out this week and said yeah you know what maybe wearing a mask is a good idea um obviously they're a little late to the party no kidding but I, i mean i guess better late than never in saying what um most of us knew to be true all along that um yeah. Wearing a mask probably isn't such a bad idea. It's not, you know, it's not a magic bullet by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a start and it's, uh, it, it's a good idea going forward,
1: right? I'm very curious to see what happens in the U.S. with these, you know, big protests, big gatherings. Um, if there's going to be sort of um, maybe not a second wave, but just sort of a lot more cases popping up, um, because, you know, in, in the material that I've read, it does take, you know, 10 to 14 days before somebody starts to show symptoms. So, you know, they've always said that we're about two weeks behind. In two weeks, we will see the results of the efforts we're taking today. Uh, and that works both ways. I mean, if there's a lot of people out, we don't see cases right away. It will take a couple of weeks before they start popping up. But I think that's a a legitimate risk, especially in the cities where they're they're still, you know, really battling this pandemic.
2: It's funny you mention
1: that because there there was
2: some pushback here. I I think we talked about um, two weeks ago, um, there was a huge gathering at Trinity Bellwoods Park, which is one of the huge parks here in Toronto. And, um, you know, people out no one was practicing social distancing and of course there is outrage and uproar um on social media about this saying look this is just going to set us back um well it's now sort of been two weeks since that occurred and you know a lot of people are now pushing back online saying well hey wait a minute what about that dramatic increase in reported cases we're expecting because of all those people that got together in the park is there any evidence to suggest that all these people not practicing social distancing um has has created some sort of catastrophic ripple effect across the city and spread of new cases Know again. I don't really know that 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 sort of argument is constructive um, or productive. But um, hey, I mean, I think a lot of people
1: are starting starting to feel that way, right? Yeah, I was going to say, are people because I haven't seen much coverage about Canada, but are people there kind of getting to that point where they're a bit stir crazy, they're a bit frustrated, they want to go back to normal, and willing to sort of take more risks?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think they are, and and you know what's interesting is. The government, of course, is under a great deal of pressure. Like all governments, the longer this goes on, um, the more pressure there is to gradually reopen things, to, to try and get the economy back to some sort of semblance of normal. Um, we saw that the, the mayor of Toronto earlier this week announced that they're going to be introducing some new rules for outdoor patios effectively as I understand certain restaurants and bars that have some patio access they can extend that that access um, into the streets. some streets will be closed in order to permit uh, socially safe distancing bars and restaurants so these businesses can reopen and try and stay alive because you know probably one of the hardest hit industries has been the service industry and people it's the summertime here and of course i mean you know what it's like in 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 the dead of winter here cam um it's cold it's dark Mm -hmm. so when the summer comes people want to get out and i think there's a lot of pressure on the government to gradually reopen things to
1: try and accommodate the public in that regard for sure um i i want to get into a little bit more about covid and i think you've got something something to share um and also um later on in the show, uh, we're also going to take a look at HBO Max. Uh, It's a new service that was launched. You may have heard about it, but I think it makes an excellent uh, case study when we're looking at sort of PR and marketing. Um, But before we get to that, uh, we will talk about uh, our legal case of the day just on the other side.
0: Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word. PRLAW Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to Ask Us at PRLawPodcast.com. That's all one word. Ask Us at PRLawPodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag PRLAWPOD.
1: All right, you dog, what's up?
2: I wanted to talk about an article actually that I shared on my my social network uh, this week. and I got a lot of feedback, a lot of comments from from lawyers practicing in the community. and and, you know this isn't unique to to the legal profession. I think it speaks volumes to to any profession. And that's um, it was a New York Times article. Discussing the pandemic's impact on, on women in the labor force. And rather than sort of summarize the article, uh, you know, I think I'm just going to read a brief quote, which really sort of summarizes the, the crux of, of what's going on. And, it's, and that's this. So women have carried an outsized share, outsized share of the burden, more likely to lose a job, and more likely to shoulder the load of closed schools and daycare. For many working mothers, the gradual reopening won't solve their problems. But compound them, forcing them out of the labor force or into part-time jobs, while increasing their responsibilities at home. "End quote." And as you you might expect, uh, um, I got a lot of feedback from from female colleagues. Um, effectively saying, yeah, yeah, this is, this is, this is a huge issue. Um, it's a huge issue in a lot of professions and, and it's definitely something we're going to need to to look at. I mean, you know, we know statistically Kim that among married couples who are working full time, women already, they're providing close to 70% of the childcare during standard working hours. Those are the standard in the, you know, the quote unquote normal times. Um, And of course we're, we're dealing with anything but standard right now. You know, the the evidence also seems to indicate that women spend on average 15 more hours per week on household tasks Mm. and and educating their children uh, than men. And you know, my concern is this. And I was, I was speaking, speaking with my, with my wife a lot about, uh, about what's going on. If the childcare centers and the schools and the day camps, the summer camps, if they all remain closed, what are we going to do as the economy gradually reopens? And, and the expectation is that people return to work. Um, you know, for a lot of lawyers, for example, the courts are starting to talk about reopening. Well, you know, that, that's great. Um, uh, but, what are you going to do if you have a motion you have to attend or a trial or any other matter you have to go and speak to directly in the court you can't very well say to the court or to opposing counsel hey sorry i'm not going to be able to make it because i've got to stay home and and take care of my child and these are very very real issues and what's unfortunate is women consistently are are bearing the brunt of this And if we have more women staying home, Cam, then, you know, the ripple effect of that is going to be significant. It's going to mean, again, once again, fewer women in senior roles, greater pay inequity, fewer work opportunities. Um, You know, and as everyone knows, it's a lot easier to find another job when you already have one, right? I mean, once you quit, getting back into the job market can be really, really difficult. And the longer that you're out, the harder it's going to be to get back in.
1: Yeah, there's no question about that. And I think, I think you know, you and when you describe this, I feel like this is not a this is not a new problem. Um, what it is, it's an old problem that has. Had light shone on it once again, because it's exacerbated in this kind of environment. So, you know, when we talk about uh, women doing a lot of the, the 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 care caring for children, or housework, or whatnot, I mean, these are issues even in normal times, and they've gotten worse now. And I'm always leery of these sort of social problems and how to approach them, because I think according to different ideologies and thoughts, you know, there's different different paths to kind of address this issue. And when there is a social issue like this, I'm always, I, I, I get nervous a little bit, because the paths forward can be quite controversial. And it's clearly something that needs to be addressed. But I get the sense that it's going to have to be a mix of actions pertaining to just sort of you know, social changes, changing social norms of sort of expectations, you know, when couples get together, because I know even even, you know, much younger friends uh, than than me, uh, or my friends much younger than me still have these issues when they when they get married, there's still in a lot of cases, the 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 male jumps to begin doing certain male things around the house and, and vice versa with the female. And I think, it has to start there it has to start with couples sitting down and talking about what their needs are what they what they're what they want to do what they feel they have to do and try and reach some sort of conclusion because at the moment you're right it's i think it's women who are who are suffering more
2: yeah you know and I, I, it it ties a lot into something we discussed a, a couple weeks ago as well kim the the idea of of those businesses with really really sort of outdated notions of what the workplace should look like and they continue to insist on FaceTime and compelling workers to, to come into the office. You know, I mean, if, if this pandemic has taught us anything, it should be that we need to see some some real structural change in the labor force, right? We, we need to see more flexible work arrangements. We need to see better and more affordable childcare options, and and we need to see men carrying more of the load at home. You know, the the New York Times article will will, will share it. You know, one of the interesting statistics in the article was that men who can work from home, they're doing about 50% more childcare than the men that don't. So, you know, th- this isn't really rocket science. If we have more men that have the ability to work from home, they're going to be more involved in what goes on in the home, be it childcare, be it educating children who who aren't currently in school, be it doing some of the domestic housework, cooking, cleaning, etc. Um, but you know, I think there's also a, a good economic argument here, and we've also talked about that in previous episodes where fewer bricks and mortar offices means businesses saving money so i I think it would behoove any small business or 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 larger company and 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 some of them have taken steps i mean i know pepsi and shopify for example have have been outspoken about trying to create more flexible work arrangements going forward but companies ultimately can save money in doing this, so really, it, it it strikes me as sort of a win-win. It's just going to require some more forward thinking on the part of
1: employers and and their employees, which is a lot to ask for. I think. I mean, if we're if we're waiting for companies to come forward voluntarily to make these changes, I think we, we may be waiting a very long time. So, I mean, the question is, is there anything else that can be done outside of that while we wait and wait for companies to be proactive? Is there another channel that we can use?
2: Well, I don't know. I I, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, to your point, couples need to be having those, those kinds of discussions themselves in the home as well. Right. Again, there, there should not be, the assumption that well look you know you've consistently done the cooking and the cleaning so you're going to continue to do the cooking and the cleaning whether that's the you know the, the man or the woman um playing that that particular role um couples need to talk about this stuff they need to have conversations to the effect of well hey what can i do to try and carry more of the load or what can we do to try and establish some you know better equilibrium here because i know you have work demands i know i have work demands and we have child care demands we have to try and strike that balance somewhere so there needs to be some some discussion within the home and then i think the next step you know once you can kind of sort of establish what the expectation and the desires are internally within your own home well then you can then make those requests to your employer you can go and. You can ask your employer hey look you know the reality is is that neither my my partner nor i are, are in a position to return to the office can we talk about a flexible work arrangement is there some other way that we can we can make this work i, I think that has to be a starting point point. and you know if there's enough pressure on employers then on, you know on some level they're going to have to accommodate those employees um, or they're going to start to lose good talent to those companies who are prepared to make those those changes
1: yeah that that um I mean I, I agree with you in principle on this uh, absolutely. but I do want to ask you as well I mean, it seems strange to me because parents are suffering because school is canceled or daycare or whatever it might be because of the pandemic. so the kids are at home which is unexpected. And uh, you know it has a, a, a it's a bit of a domino because, like you say, they they can't go to work then as a result of their kids being home. Is there any recourse that these parents can take legally? And I, I'm guessing there is not. But like for all of the parents that basically structure their working hours of their lives around their kids' schooling schedule, you know, because that change could have a drastic economic impact on their well-being, actually, their income. Is there any recourse? Is there any way to hold anyone re- responsible for that or to seek help?
2: Well, yeah. And and again, this is one of those issues where it really sort of depends on where you are. It depends on the the, the employer. It depends on whatever governing legislation is in your particular jurisdiction. And I, again, I know you, you, you hate it when I say stuff like that, Cam, because it's sort of a lawyerly way to avoid answering <laughs> the question. Um, but the reality is, is that, yeah, there is no sort of, you know, um, one size fits all solution to that particular problem or answer to that particular question. It really has to be a dialogue that you, you engage in with your employer in telling them what what you need and and relative to what they need. Now, obviously, in some contexts, that's not possible. I mean, if you're a delivery driver, for example, you can't sit down with your employer and say, hey, can I work from home a few days a week? That's just not realistic. You know, and and again, we, we have the Human Rights Code here in Ontario. There's Human Rights Codes in the majority of provinces in Canada. In some Human Rights Codes, uh, Human Rights Code like legislation and a lot of states in the the U.S. as well. And here in Ontario, of course, employers have a duty to accommodate their employees up to the point of undue hardship. So, you know, whatever their decisions are, they can't be perceived to be discriminatory on the basis of of gender or marital status. Um, So there is some flexibility and accommodation there. But again, you know, using the delivery truck example you could be a, a working mother or a working father and have three four children um, your employer isn't going to be in a position to accommodate you working from home when you know you're you're a delivery driver it's just not it's not feasible unless there's some other role within the company that they can sort of temporarily place you until things get back to normal which in fairness a lot of a lot of businesses have done. Um, but short of that, yeah, it's it's a I, I don't know. There isn't really a one size fits all solution to this.
1: These are all victims. I, I think this is why COVID nineteen is so tragic. Is there are a lot of people, millions of people, who are victims of this of this pandemic and really have no legit recourse in many cases. Um, I think it was positive last week that there were there were some new jobs created in the United States. You know, that's a, that's a big step forward. But I want to take a look at this from a very, very sort of broad scope from a very high level. And that is, I, I think the one thing that COVID-19 taught us, and we have mentioned this before, is that a lot of people can work from home. And obviously not the truck drivers like you mentioned. Um, but because that barrier has kind of been broken down. Um, I think it's taught bosses and supervisors and senior executives that um, that it can be done and the work can still get done uh, when people are at home. And now, like I've really felt strongly about this for a very long time. You know, people ask me if I if I mind getting work phone calls or emails or messages, you know, late at night or on a weekend that I have to respond to, and. I always say I I don't mind that. I don't mind it at all because I'm doing my job. However, when I need some time for myself personally, I would like my employer to also understand that. So it's not I'm in the office from eight until six every day and then I must also be on call all night and all weekend it should be, you know, the hours are set. I'll try and be there for most of that. But you know how life goes. Sometimes we're going to have to help the company in the evening or the weekend or even on holiday. And sometimes I may need a little bit of time and I would like my company to, to, to agree to that. And I think if it's approached this way, um, I think there might be able to be some breakthroughs, but it's just so difficult to change entrenched thinking. And it's a bigger problem here in Asia obviously which is even more conservative you know sitting there at your desk or in your office is actually required by a lot of the uh, a lot of the companies in Hong Kong you know to the point where people won't go home until the boss goes home first which drives me insane because I'm often in that situation I work better at night so I often stay later and I can see my my teammates waiting around. And I always tell them, please go home, just go home. You don't have to stay because I'm here. But it's so deeply ingrained. And I know this doesn't affect Canada at the same level, but it is deeply ingrained thinking. And behavior and it's very very difficult yeah. to change.
2: Yeah, one and and you're right and that does um, the way that manifests in a in, in a virtual working environment. Uh, to to your point, it doesn't mean people are working less; it means they're working more. And you know, if there is any if there is any doubt or any concern that oh, but people working from home, I mean, they're just going to slack off and they're not going to do anything. Well, all the evidence strongly suggests the opposite, which is that everyone is working far more than they used to because to your point there are no sort of set established hours um you know you don't come into the office at a particular time or leave the office at a particular time you're effectively fielding messages all day every day and, and in the evening as well there are no clear boundaries now i, I think that on a long enough timeline as we sort of learn how to work from home because and again, you know, let, let's not take for granted that a lot of people have been working from home for years in a virtual capacity. For a lot of people, this is nothing new. But for those for those businesses where this is something, something new, it's like anything else. You have to learn how to do it. What are the parameters? What are the expectations? Um, all of that stuff has to be clearly established and because none of this was planned the idea of all of us all of a sudden overnight working from home, a lot of these parameters never were formally established, so we're effectively trying to figure it out as we go. You know, I'm I'm hopeful that on a long enough timeline, we'll, we will create some some firmer boundaries in terms of when people are expected to respond to emails or, or be present for for calls and what have you. But, um, I mean, to your point, right now it still still seems like a bit of a free for all.
1: You know, you mentioned that some employers might be concerned that their employees are slacking off, and I've always wondered, you know how this is any different to an employee being in the office. I mean, an employee can be in the office and slacking off all day long. I mean, they're they're, they're at a computer connected to the internet. I mean, they could do so, they could run an, their own business, you know, while they're sitting at work. And there's no way to fully prevent that unless you're using software that does the screenshots and the, and the keyboard logging, which is an awful invasion of privacy, although some companies do that. So I think you know, slacking off can happen home or at work. But secondly, bosses should be aware about what their employees are doing. And, you know, if their employees have time to do nothing, it means they don't have enough work. And like, for, from my perspective, I want my team to perform. I want them to deliver what I expect them to deliver. Honestly, I have, I do not care when or how they do that. Well, I care about the how to some degree. But, um, you know, because as long as the work is done and it's done well, then where you did that means nothing. And the same can go for the other way with slacking on both sides
2: yeah I, I, ab- absolutely I, I, it doesn't make any sense to me either this idea that you have to be slacking if you're working at home whereas if you're sitting in the office you couldn't possibly be slacking off i mean it, it's just it's preposterous I'm, you could be sitting in front of a computer staring at a blank screen or surfing the internet and, and to your shopping unless the employer has some some sort of monitoring uh, of your your web activity, they really have no idea what it is that you're physically doing when you're sitting there in the office. Um, I, I wanted to, to touch briefly, because you, you mentioned it, Cam, the, the job numbers, because this sort of ties back into to my, my original argument about how women are being, being disproportionately impacted by this. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the, the US economy and that it did. Yeah, to your point, it surprisingly added 2.5 million jobs in May. Uh, we added jobs here in Canada, too. You know, we, there was a, a prediction from economists that we were going to lose a further half million jobs in the month of May, and surprisingly, we added two hundred and ninety thousand, which is which is great. But what I thought was more interesting was that uh, rather tellingly, male employment increased more than twice as fast as that for women through the month of May in terms of those new jobs. Particularly mothers with at least one child under the age of six. So you know I, I, again this just sort of goes back to to the to the initial point women are being hit really really hard by this and statistically they're going to bear the brunt of a lot of these losses and and I'm concerned that there's going to be a road, an erosion of a lot of the progress that's been made in the in the labor force in terms of you know gender equality across all kinds of professions Um be it be it law or otherwise. And it, what are we gonna do to to try and 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 sort
1: that out? I, I, I don't know, but it's it's definitely concerning. It will be impossible to solve this issue in relation to COVID nineteen without solving it, you know, in a broader scope because they're related. I mean the issue of childcare, division of labor, you know, working, being laid off, time at work, time at home, on-call. These are all issues that, you know, affect women and men everywhere. <laughs> so it has to be addressed at that level. And then the uh, the knock-on benefit comes down to, to something from COVID-19. Um, but anyway, I'm with you. I hope this is something that, that is addressed. I'm not optimistic, to be honest. Um, I think there can be change, and there's been change over time in many other similar areas. But I think this kind of change moves at a glacial pace, and so we'll have to be patient. Agreed. All right. Uh, thanks, you. And I, I, we're on the other side here. Uh, I'm going to dive into HBO Max.
0: Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRandLawPodcast.com. That's PRandLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out.
1: Okay, before diving into that, uh, I did uh, want to look up uh, Hong Kong's jobless rate because I, I actually... It has been published. I hadn't been paying attention. So I, I looked it up. So as of as of May, the end of May, the jobless rate in Hong Kong was five point two percent, which isn't bad. I usually Hong Kong's unemployment rate hovers around two percent. Um, so five point two. I mean, it, it has increased a lot in relative terms, um, but but not a lot overall i'm 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 a little bit surprised by that yeah,
2: i I'd, I'd say you i'd say you're sitting pretty at 5.2% relative
1: to uh to the rest of the world that's that's impressive yeah it's not bad um okay i got i got to perk up a bit here too i feel like i'm uh, sluggish I'm a little bit low energy for some reason um okay so Ewan, have you heard about hbo max yeah, I mean, uh, I, just bits and pieces here and there on, on on the twitters and what have you, but not not much. No. Okay, so I mean, what is it? I mean, do you know what it is? And I'm not putting on the spot to ridicule you or or, or, or uh, you know somehow make fun of you, but I'm just curious if you're familiar with what it is or how it works.
2: No, I mean my my understanding is just that it's a it's a new HBO platform with with new programming. Is it not?
1: Okay. Yes, in a very broad way. Um, Now, there's a lot of commentary online at the moment about how HBO rolled out HBO Max. And um, it's such a great case study in general, I think, about branding and the value of brand. You know, so a lot of people, you know, we see brands everywhere. We see them on buildings and, and, and trucks and billboards and television and Spotify and on and on and on and on. So people are aware of branding. But I mean, the one thing that is difficult is to build up a valuable brand, and it's even harder to keep that brand at that high level uh, of recognition and prestige. So, I mean, HBO in particular—if we take a look at, um, you know, what they what they have recently done—was in May, towards the end of May, they rolled out this new product, um, HBO Max, and. I think it's fair to say, uh, and if you take a look at some branding audits, HBO, it, it does have a good reputation for, for quality programming. Um, you know, a lot of the shows that they create, like I personally enjoy them a lot. I think you do too. Um, you know, just to name a few that HBO has done, Game of Thrones, The Sopranos, Sex and the City, True Blood, The Wire, uh, Big Little Lies, Succession. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Succession waiting for season three. Um, so it, it, it has done well. But it does take time to build that up i mean hbo has been around 50 years if you can believe it um and so it, it wasn't this way at the beginning a similar story with espn uh when they started they had uh, no sports no, rights.
2: 50 years really i
1: yeah. had no idea uh and it took a long time for espn to build that up so um but hbo is finding itself sort of in the in the crosswinds of change so i mean Without getting too into the weeds, these cable channels have made money by, you know, signing agreements with with uh, cable companies to be included, you know, on someone's cable package. And that's very lucrative. That's how a lot of you know stations made their money, HBO included. And people will pay quite a bit, actually, to get HBO programming. So, you know, when Netflix launched and things slowly started to move online, HBO was in a very difficult situation. Because... You know, they didn't want to just launch an app and put it online, because even if all of their existing customers, actually maybe not all, even if a large number of their existing cable subscribers switched to HBO's own product, it wouldn't recoup the losses from cable. Like Cable is the number one way they make money, so they were kind of stuck there, because people were calling for access to HBO on their Apple TVs and Rokus, and they couldn't do it. So. In 2010, they rolled out HBO Go. So HBO Go has now been around 10 years as of this year. And basically what it is, is a a way to watch HBO via an app on set-top boxes like Roku or PlayStation uh, and that kind of thing. But the caveat is you have to have a cable subscription. You have to already be subscribing to HBO through your cable provider. So, I mean, this was one way to serve their market is you like HBO It's part of your cable, so they, they give you a free app. You can watch HBO on your phone or wherever you are, and and that's great. But the demand continued to increase for people who wanted to sign up just for HBO services. I, I would be one included in that, actually. I don't watch a lot of TV at all, but I think HBO is worthwhile. Why is it worthwhile? Because Because they make quality programs. So HBO Now rolled out in 2015, and this was HBO's way of saying, okay, we will create a standalone app like Netflix, and people can pay for it, it's $14.99 per month, and that way you can watch all of the HBO shows, you can go back in way deep into their library of of shows and watch them on demand, on iPad or iPhone or Android or Apple TV, blah, 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 self-explanatory. And this really primarily appealed to cord cutters. Um, or people who didn't have HBO as part of their cable package. So fast forward to last month, May 2020. HBO launched HBO Max. There are now three distinct products based on an app, which right off the top would be uh, a, a little bit of a red flag from a branding point of view. So HBO. So hang, on,
2: hang on, just let me let me get this let me get this straight for a second. So yes. there's now. HBO, well, there's now HBO Now, there's HBO Go, there's HBO Max, and then, of course, there's just good old-fashioned HBO, HBO. Is that right?
1: As part of your cable package. Yeah, if you count that, there's four HBO products. Huh, okay. So uh, what HBO is doing is it's taking its HBO library of content and putting it into HBO Max, Then HBO is going out to buy content. A couple of the names have been released already, South Park, Big Bang Theory, Wonder Woman. These shows will now be part of HBO Max. And then in addition to that, they're also going to create new shows specifically for HBO Max. They will not run on your cable channel. So they're sort of throwing three big buckets of content into one service and it's been confusing for people. I mean, people don't wanna look through the differences of three similar services and how they work and how you sign up. So naturally there's gonna be some problems there. So I mean, that's how the service works to my understanding and I want to now throw to uh, the chairman of Warner Media Entertainment, which, which owns HBO um, because the chairman, Bob Greenblatt, was on uh, a Vox Media podcast Recently, to talk about HBO Go, and I mean one of the questions he got is why this sort of structure of three different apps and why HBO max would be valuable to customers
3: Why is it going to be good for the consumer? Um, I think it's a wildly exciting value proposition, which in I guess layman's speak is to say that we have a lot of great content i mean it's an extraordinary level of excellence, and it of course starts with the HBO service in its complete totality, and beyond that, we have extraordinary library content from arguably the greatest film and television libraries in the world at Warner Brothers, and we've acquired third-party content, and I can go into more detail on all that, but we're also making a whole new slate of original uh, content that we call Max Originals which will fill out the programming that HBO doesn't currently offer. And by that, I mean aimed at younger demos, kids, teenagers, young adults, as well as genres that HBO doesn't typically do, such as uh, scripted and unscripted and reality shows. So when you put all that together, we think it is uh, pretty undeniable.
1: Now that sounds to me like Greenblatt doesn't really know who he's going after. And so he's just throwing everything at the wall. He's just going to put in. Well,
2: he also, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you should never use extraordinary and excellence in the same sentence. (laughs) I I don't know where he was going with that.
1: Yeah. Uh, So HBO is basically trying to see what works and you heard him sort of talking about some of the demographics they're going after. They talked about kids and adults and all, all these sort of different groups of people, which is very difficult to do. I mean, right there is a red flag. I mean, it sort of goes into marketing 101. You define your customer. Who is this person? You know, and based on your sort of caricature of a person or a customer, you build your business around that. It's it's something sort of very early in, a, in, in the marketing life cycle. So naturally, you know, people are confused. There's a lot of questions online. It's it's kind of hurt HBO somewhat because it is known for this high-quality content. This seems like something a little bit different. I'm going to give you one more clip of Greenblatt because he was asked a good question by Peter Kafka, who, who is with Vox Media and hosted the podcast. And he said, asked to, to Bob, who is the person who doesn't like HBO but will be convinced to buy HBO Max? Because clearly the fans of HBO are already paying for this through their HBO Now. So they're trying to get new people. So who is this person that would want to buy this?
3: Well, we think there's, you know, a 150- and." a hundred some million people in the country that, you know, that would be on that list. And, you know, while I'm being a little flippant about it, you know, we do know that there are people who, you know, for many years have said uh, HBO isn't for me. You know, they don't program the kinds of things that I like, or maybe they have kids and there's not a lot of kids programming. We hope that when you realize that HBO Max is so much more than just HBO, you might be interested in subscribing, and I also think in reverse, this will accrue to HBO's benefit because I think there are some people who don't think that HBO is right for them, but just don't know how much great content is in there, and I think when it's put together on one platform, it'll all be served up together, and I think you will find content that you might otherwise not have known about that could be great for you. And specifically, we can talk about this all day long, you know, it's Friends, and it's South Park, and it's Big Bang Theory, and it's, you know, 400 classic movies, and, you know, it's The West Wing, and all of the great HBO shows, which you may or may not know about, Um, and then new things that we're going to serve up to you for the next several years that is just going to keep accruing to, hopefully... Kids and, and all, as I said, the, all the other demos. It's Sesame Street. It's, you know, the Ghibli film library. It's anime. It's programming from everything from, you know, Adult Swim and DC Comics and Looney Tunes and CNN Films. I mean, there's so much great content in the totality of it that we think it will be really exciting once we, you know, get that word out.
1: What does that sound like to you, Ewan?
2: Uh, it it sounds first of all it just sounds terrible and sounds like a bunch of goggly goop, um, but it also sounds like HBO has decided that they want to be all things to all people and and what you know I, I'm I'm also a, a huge fan of, of of HBO and frankly if it was a choice between Netflix and HBO I'd let Netflix go before I let HBO go, um, but I think one of the things that I've always I've always enjoyed about HBO at least in terms of my understanding of their brand or perception of that brand is that they've always focused on quality over quantity their their hit to miss ratio is is exceptional whereas you know Netflix is clearly like we're, we're just gonna bombard you with content be it original programming being it pulling in television shows and and films from from other studios or other networks hbo has has always been they've always showed restraint and said you know we're we're going to keep it slim so this idea that all of a sudden they're going to be all things to all people i think it's just going to dilute the brand i think it's completely contrary to what has made it an exceptional product up to this point.
1: That's exactly right. Um, I mean, I think of HBO the same way. I think, you know, in the United States, uh, HBO is the most frequently requested cable channel uh, among the U.S. cable operators. It has a huge fan base and it is appreciated. And I think, you know, when you know that any business actually has has a commitment to sort of quality and craft and isn't making something, um, you know, for the, for the vast majority of people, but something good that some people will appreciate and those people will, will appreciate it and pay for it. So it, it, it's, a, it's a totally different direction for the company, and I want to come back to that um, in a minute. Um, so, I mean, the naming conventions, aside from just what they're putting into HBO Max, the, the naming conventions have been really confusing people um, because when a new product like this is rolled out, there are three things uh, that that are always asked, or maybe they weren't asked in this case, but should be asked about this new product. And any company should go through this pro- the process. So number one is what is the product? And number two, why? Why should I buy the product? And then number three, how? So if we look at the what is the product, it's HBO, but it's also not HBO. And it's some new HBO shows. <laughs> so there's no coherent message there. If you can't, you know, answer what a product is very quickly and have the person understand what you're saying, uh, that's a huge challenge uh, right off the bat. So secondly, why would someone buy it? And, um, you know, this is an interesting one because HBO fans, if, if you love HBO, you probably already have it <laughs> as part of your your, your cable mix or, or through uh, an app it's through HBO Go. So, you know, as Greenblatt mentioned, non-HBO fans are an option. So they also want to go after non-HBO fans who theoretically are completely different to HBO fans. And here's the thing. If you don't like HBO, why would you buy HBO Max? Because it already has a sort a, of a, a brand recognition. And going after people who have chosen not to use your product is a very steep hill to climb even if there's new shows going in there because the brand recognition is so strong. Go ahead, you.
2: Yeah, well, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, but that, that sound clip you played, um, I didn't come away from that understanding what the distinction is going to be between the new programming from HBO proper, we'll call it, and HBO Max. They're effectively saying, yeah, we're, we're gonna continue to develop programming for HBO and we're gonna develop new programming for HBO Max. It's like, well, so, so how are they going to be different? What's going to distinguish one product from the other? How am I supposed to determine which product I then want? Are you going to be doing sort of Cheaper, half-assed com content for HBO Max and the, and the, the the marquee shows like your Game of Thrones or the Wire. These kind of programs are going to continue to air on on sort of the de facto, you know, HBO. That that wasn't clear at all. It just again, it sounded like a bunch of goggly goop.
1: Yeah, the risk here is so if let's just say Greenblatt is is successful that they go after non-HBO fans or people who want a huge selection, you know, of television shows and movies similar to Netflix. If you succeed in building that, it will naturally mean the end of HBO's current reputation, which is not that. Trying to straddle that line is very difficult. So either they succeed in bringing in tons of new fans, but harm their image, or they maintain their image and lose that battle. There's kind of no win to it, which makes it even more confusing and compelling on some level. But I do want to get to the how can I buy it, which would be the third question. And and as confusing as this has been so far, I think this one takes the cake. So HBO Now subscribers will be automatically upgraded to HBO Max subscribers. So the cost is the same. However, if you have HBO Now on Hulu, Apple or Roku, yeah, no upgrade. HBO now even though you pay for it and no indication of when there will even be any information about that so if you watch HBO now on some other platforms you get the free upgrade but if you watch on these three which are huge Roku has the biggest you know set top box TV market in the United States you can't watch HBO max on it so HBO go remains in some markets. If you do have them on cable, you'll still be able to watch on HBO Go. And then HBO Max is available in the US only, but not available on set-top boxes, where HBO now will continue to be played. This is a mess. This is a communications mess. It sounds like the business plan was not thought through. And I'm not even here to say that they will be unsuccessful. They may be successful at this. And for their sake, I hope they are successful at this. but. By choosing this course of action, they're making it much more difficult on themselves. The one thing, you know, the advice that we give to companies all the time is know your brand, know who you are, know what you represent, know why people like you. And for your business strategy, not just your communication strategy, you wanna go hard in that direction. And, you know, HBO can create more shows. You know, there's no question about that, although there is going to be a limit. And I worry that by going down this path, HBO Max is just going to be a Netflix, not clone, but a very similar product that costs more money to subscribe to. And yeah, you'll get some, you'll get some good HBO shows, no question. But going up against Netflix is a very difficult thing to do. And I just don't think this was thought through.
2: Well, isn't you know that old adage of if it ain't broke, don't fix it and uh, you know i don't know nearly enough about the financial state of hbo but i mean were they are they currently in a situation where they're not making enough money financially that they have to completely try and reinvent reinvent the wheel here is this is this necessary
1: well they are looking uh down down the road and you know it's possible that sooner than we would think that regular cable television might not be around or as be as prolific uh, as it is now. So, I mean, you can see the direction everything is going and it's app based or it's, um, you know, an app you can install on any platform that you want, your phone, your your television, your PlayStation, uh, iPad, you know, on and on and on. And so there's a clear benefit that way. And also just that's the way that media is being distributed now. So, but HBO has been known to be very slow to move, because they have had a much better reputation than some of the other networks. But they really waited a very long time to decide to go down this road. And I think if I were there, and obviously there's going to be business numbers that I don't have access to, so I'm really just basing this off of, you know, what I've been able to read and glean about its situation, Um, I think they could have gone down a more Apple route. And I don't think Apple should have gone down the route that they went down, but Apple TV, not the box, but the service, um, they only show original programming. So it's quite light. You know, when it launched, I think it only had like six or seven shows. But they've been rolling them out quite regularly. And so they're building up, uh, you know, a, a, an app and a network full of, full of content. But it's all original content um, at this time. I, I think that's very difficult for Apple to do because it doesn't have a reputation as a, as a television network. And so it has a big uphill climb you know, to make that successful. But HBO was primed for that kind of thing. If HBO, because HBO is well-loved already, and if it could take their existing library, their existing hit shows, and then make more of that kind of original content, I think you, you may have a service that you could price even higher because you're going after the premium end of the market. I think trying to compete just on quantity is it almost commoditizes the shows to some degree. I mean, they're not commodities because you know some shows are more valuable than others, obviously in terms of viewership and revenue. um but it it just it it does tarnish tarnish the brand. They're going in a different direction. I think there will be some uh, there will be some blowback from that.
2: yeah, well, I mean I and and again, I may perhaps I'm wrong, but I always sort of operate under the assumption that hBO was already sort of at the in in kind of the upper echelon in terms of the quality of programming such that they th- their issue certainly isn't, if they have one, that they don't have a big enough volume of content, <laughs> but hey, I mean, I, I don't work in the industry. Um, what do I know? It just strikes me as it strikes me as, as strategically a, a very, very poor choice to sort of move into a, a higher saturation level of content simply to try and, and compete with Netflix. It just seems short-sighted.
1: Yeah. The other example is Disney Plus. I mean, Disney Plus has had the most successful launch of any of the streaming networks. And, you know, why is that? Because Disney has just a huge library of intellectual property with characters and franchises and whatnot. And so I think HBO is more akin to Disney in that way, but for adults and, you know, Disney alongside their library, they also rolled out new Disney shows. Um, And, I think they got 30 million subscribers, I think, in just like a month. And it's 30 or 33 million. It's right around there, which is, you know, it's, it's insanely high. Um, and that's based off its reputation, its shows, its IP. And HBO had a, a very similar setup. But I think, you know, one thing we're just seeing just in, in, in markets in general is that people are willing to pay more you know if if they perceive that product to be premium uh i think we, we see it with hbo now already at 15 a month which is quite high just for hbo only programming you know you see it in hardware uh televisions i mean all kinds of stuff there is room at that higher end you know where they could have stayed and doubled down on their reputation you know further strengthened their reputation uh and and gone about it that way um so I hope it works out. For for their sake, I hope it works out. I'm nervous, though, um, because you know, filling filling up their channel with all kinds of you know random shows they purchased, uh, it might not look very good. I do want to mention one thing, though. Uh, this is a story. I may have told this to you before, but I, I was at some seminar. I can't even remember where I heard this, but it talked about HBO and Netflix and how HBO missed the boat on this. And it said because... You know, when HBO is planning its schedule and it's buying shows, it's thinking of time slots for those shows. You know, so it's thinking, you know, primetime Monday, Monday night. You know, what are they going to show at noon on, on Sunday? Uh, you know, Bill Maher is on Friday night. So they're thinking of filling out the the, the schedule that way with hit shows in primetime slots, which makes sense. But there's only 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week. So there's only only so many shows that they are even able to broadcast. Whereas Netflix looked at it a completely different way and said, we don't need to fill a timetable like that. We can literally have thousands of shows because there's no limit. And, you know, this is is such a good example of seeing the world the way that it was or the way that you're familiar with and completely missing how the world has changed. And this does happen a lot. I mean, there's a lot of case studies out there about this. But as you know, as HBO was trying to, to innovate and trying to do more, it just didn't even cross HBO executives' minds to go the route of Netflix in the very early days. And, and that's one reason Netflix has been so successful. I mean, to this day, I think Netflix is so far ahead of the other networks. And maybe because also, like, they are international. I mean, HBO is in a couple of international markets. I think Netflix is in more than 100. So, I mean, there's just no comparison and, and as netflix um continues to generate revenue i i do think that their show quality is going to increase and if it does that that hurts that will hurt hbo because they've now positioned themselves as a netflix alternative and um i'm not sure if they're really built for that but we'll see anything else on that dog you want to mention or can we uh move on
2: no i I think i think we can move on but i think i i would like to use this as a a very very quick opportunity to to mention um because you spoke to sort of the international quality of 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 netflix and uh uh, jill my, my my wife and i she and i have uh have started watching a show called um the kingdom on netflix which is a south korean uh, series. It's a period piece, and it it provides sort of a very very interesting twist on the zombie genre. Really? Highly recommend it. But what's sort of interesting and cool about it is, as I understand, it's the first Netflix production um, in South Korea. So sort of to your point, you know, I can sit in in my my living room in Toronto, Canada, and watch a really really cool um, South Korean drama with great production value, uh, on, on Netflix. And that's kind of neat. If, if I'm now going to have the opportunity to sort of get to engage with some really cool international programming that I otherwise wouldn't have access to, I think again, that's, that's also a leg up for Netflix. That's it.
1: Yeah. I, I, um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think that's one, one cool thing about Netflix. And I will say like, when I, I, again, I don't watch a ton of TV, um, but when I open Netflix, I usually see multiple things that I would like to watch, usually sort of more on the documentary side or, you know, those kinds of, of items. I mean, there's just so much on there. And I think, yeah, it's comprehensive and you're getting good value at the price that Netflix is at at the moment, uh, in my view. And it's just got such a head start. I mean, all of the countries that it's operating in, I mean, it takes a long time to get all the necessary licenses and things like that. They, they've, been, they've been managed managed well. Um, I do want to move in now you and to the uh, the recommendations because I think I think we have a couple. I have a couple today. Uh, what have you got?
2: Yeah, I want well, I wanted to mention actually it was an article that, that you had sent to me, I believe um, that interestingly uh, was was sent to me by a few different people. It was a Vox article. We can share it uh, in the show notes and the the title of the article was the inescapable pressure of being a woman on zoom and i guess in some regard this sort of ties back to what we were discussing earlier where the women have been disproportionately hit hard by by the pandemic but this was more sort of um speaking to cultural norms in terms of the the zoom media and the zoom calls and particularly in the, in, you know, in our profession in the legal world and in, in litigation, we've had mediations and examinations for discoveries. They've they've continued over Zoom, and the article discusses the pressures that continue to apply to women that men seem to have been um, relatively immune to. So it talks about things like women being um, disproportionately concerned with, you know, the, the their appearance, notably hair, um, because they can't get their hair cut, makeup, and that they're constantly apologizing for these things. And there's there's a really great soundbite in the, in the article um, where they're interviewing a, a litigator in the U.S. who says, you know, look, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm a litigator. I'm a mother. I don't need to apologize to anyone for the fact that I haven't had my hair cut. In a few weeks or I'm not as made up as I might be under normal circumstances. These are not normal circumstances and we have to stop putting and applying this kind of pressure on women to constantly look a certain way or be perceived a certain way in a professional context when it's completely irrelevant to their ability to to do their job, um, and then you know they sort of the article kind of juxtaposes that with men who you know are kind of virtual high fiving each other for the fact that they haven't shaved in weeks and hey isn't this fantastic and look how long my hair is and nobody seems to be holding men to to that same standard let alone men themselves so anyway I thought that was was uh that that was quite an interesting article and we
1: should we should share that with the with the folks this is similar to what we talked about earlier i think this also is a societal problem that's just become more acute in in, in the COVID 19 age because i mean if you if you stand back a bit like i do think females are under a lot of pressure to you know dress and look well all the time um and i think you know on, on zoom it's just a little stranger than normal because you're actually not leaving your house and normally you don't well, normally you don't really sort of do your hair carefully. I don't think anyone, I'm I'm a male, so I have no idea what I'm talking about. But I would think, you know, you're at home. It's more relaxing. You go out, I think, especially women get ready to go out. And um, I do think this is a problem. I, I wanted to ask you, though, on the sort of uh, Zoom culture there, because, I mean, so, I mean, I work at Tencent, so we use Tencent Meeting uh, which is, you know, their meeting app that's like Zoom. They, they came up with an English version of it. That's got oh, the name. It's called VOOV, V-O-O-V. Anyway, it works just like Zoom. And I, I obviously use that a lot, but I also use Zoom and I use Microsoft Teams and even Skype from time to time. But there's kind of a uh, cultural norm here now to not turn on the video camera. So a lot of meetings, the the audio's on, but the video's off. And is that common there? Or is it almost always video?
2: Well, I mean, in the legal context, the video is is always on. Absolutely. I mean, for examinations, for discovery, for mediations. Um, I mean, yeah, it's not an option to turn off the video. Although one thing, interestingly, the Vox article talks about and, and suggests um, to try and get away from this idea and of being fixated on our, on our own image. And, you know, are we, is our hairstyle appropriately, are we wearing the right makeup is to turn off the video that, you know, the, the the camera image that is, is of yourself to effectively eliminate that. So as opposed to being fixated by the idea of how do I appear on the camera, just turn it off and then you don't have to think about it at all. Um, you can just focus on, on the, the other individuals. But yeah, I mean, generally speaking in a legal context, the video, the video stays on. Um, I mean, I know in terms of dealing with clients, Uh, rarely do, are they insistent on video? In fact, I think um, a lot of clients that I've been dealing with over the last number of weeks, they kind of like the idea of, Hey, we can, we can jump on a call and I don't have to worry about, you know, making sure I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a suit or my hair is styled properly, or I'm, I'm, I'm clean shaven because it's sort of irrelevant. We can just kind of relax and, and, and have a call. So I think that's good. And I'm, I'm going to be very interested to see what happens when we go back to some semblance of normal. I mean, particularly with, you know, initial consultations with new clients Um, are they going to continue to come in to meet in person the way that they typically would, pre-covid or you know now that these sort of new norms have been established are more consultations going to go, going to go forward either over a, an audio call or or a video call
1: i hope so i I love doing these calls instead of meeting face to face. Like I I really dislike meetings. I find them disruptive and like I can be in a groove of working and suddenly it's like, oh, you know, get up, go, go, go to a meeting room, sit down with whoever you're supposed to meet with or outside vendor whatever. It's so much nicer to put on headphones and just click join and begin talking. Uh, It's, I don't know. It shouldn't be that much of a difference, but to me, psychologically it's a big difference and and I, I much much prefer it. But you and just now you were saying turn off the video so the person doesn't see the video. You're saying the person won't see themselves, their own video, or they're not sending their own video to others. No, I'm just talking about they won't see themselves. Oh, I see that. Okay. You know, they, they, this is discussed in the Vox
2: article that this is this is part of the problem, right? I mean, all of these video apps, the 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 normal the normal setup is, you know, there's a a large image where you see the person that you're speaking with and then a smaller image where you can see yourself to make Mm -hmm. sure clearly you're positioned in front of the camera properly, et cetera. And, you know, the article sort of suggests once you've figured out that, Hey, I'm sitting in the right space, turn that video off. So that way you're less self-conscious, you're less fixated with, Hey, do I look, do I look appropriate? Mm -hmm. Don't worry about that turn your camera off, and then you can
1: focus on the situation at hand. Mm. The fallout from from COVID-19, I mean, it's going to be happening for years. A lot of these things are going to change. Um, okay, I, I wanted to, to mention two quickly. Um, the first one, uh, again, I'm a huge fan of the Ezra Klein Show. He's one of my favorite journalists for a number of reasons. Uh, but he has sat down with uh, Todd nehisi Coates uh, to talk about what's happening in the United States. And it is... I mean, like a lot of his discussions, very, very enlightening. It goes quite deep into it, um, and it's just one of those conversations where you start listening to this and you start listening to 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 Tanahisi coates's perspective and his thoughts, and an hour can go by without noticing. It's uh, it's an engrossing interview, and it really provides, I think, a really, really good look into the sort of systemic problems um, that exist with law enforcement in the United States. Um, I can't can't recommend it highly enough. Oh, cool. Okay, I'll I'll have to check that out. Yeah, yeah, please do. The um, the other one, uh, this is something I have been thinking about a little bit. Not in the way you would think, but anyway, there's an article that was published in The Atlantic called, The Best Way to Handle Your Decline is to Confront It Head-On, and You know, I I read an article years ago now about people's decline in terms of their reflexes, their thinking, their abilities, and how how subtle it is and how minute the changes are day to day, but how they do add up to something much more significant. And they use the example of a a baseball player, someone who is going to the plate and, and is easily you know hitting hitting the ball and getting on base or hitting a home run or just basically yeah, getting on base. Um, and how as you age, because they, they they tested this sort of player, and even year to year or month to month, their timing is off a fraction of a fraction of a second, but it's just enough to turn that, that base hit into a foul ball. And y- you feel right, you see the ball coming, you're familiar with it, you know you can hit it, and you attempt, but it doesn't work like it did before. And so I've always thought about that since then, because I think about, you know, like I follow sports closely and you look at, you know, players who age and you think, wow, like they're 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 a different player sometimes at 34 than they were at 30. And that's just four years. Um, And then you think about it in the workplace. I mean, obviously, I'm sure everyone, a lot of our listeners have worked with with people who, you know, have begun begun to be not quite as good as they were before. You know, or their systems are not catching up or whatever it might be. And so it is an interesting subject to me a lot. And this article takes a look at how you deal with that. And, you know, the number one uh, piece of advice from this is to, yeah, confront it. Talk about it. It's just like death. You know, rather than sort of internalize everything, put something into the open. Put death, put your decline into the open and address it. Because it takes away a lot of its power, you know, over over individual people and a lot of dread and a lot of fear uh, can go away if you're open with it. And, um, I think it's a, a very, very interesting article. I'll put a link to that in the show notes too
2: cool that sounds that sounds great as well i didn't i haven't read that um and yeah it, that it is a very interesting subject i mean we certainly see that a lot in in the legal profession is there are so there are too many and we've talked about this before just too many lawyers that stick around um well past their 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 expiration date um, because they don't really know what else to do right they haven't over the years, developed uh, hobbies or or social infrastructure outside of work because their work has been so all encompassing um, that there has been nothing else. And therefore, when they try to take that away or or retire and and move on to other things, there are no other things to move on to. And inevitably, they they return, be it in a part time capacity or they continue to work in full time capacity, and effectively turn a blind eye to those issues that you're discussing. So.
1: Um, yeah, very, very interested to check that out for sure. Uh, anything else you want to add, you in before we uh, wrap up episode number nine?
2: No, just uh, you know, again, um, it, it's it, it's wonderful to know that 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 people are are listening and enjoying the show. And um, please send us your questions, send us your comments, um, discussion topics, ideas. We we'll, we'll take it all. We'll review it all um you know we really want to really want to hear what you guys think
1: about the show absolutely very very well said Ewan. and uh and uh you know for me because we record this show quite late on sunday night for me so it's it's uh, 20 to 1 in the morning so i just want to apologize in advance because i do feel a little bit low energy today i can just feel it in my voice uh but it was still a very good discussion today and we really appreciate you joining us so uh if if you did enjoy this podcast or any of the other ones that we've done please you know, tell a friend, uh, let them know. We, we definitely, uh, you know, feel very encouraged when we see our, our subscription numbers each week. Uh, it really, it really does mean a lot. It tells us that, you know, we're providing something of use <laughs> anyway. Uh, and you can also follow us on social media at PR lawpod P R L A W P O D on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram. So that's it, everybody. Good times. This is Cam McMurch for you and Christy. We'll see you next week.
0: This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word: PRLAW Podcast. Thanks for your
3: support.